If you're with me, turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, as we close out the chapter this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27. And I submit to you and I admit to you this morning that I am needy. Are you needy this morning? I hope you've come and you understand that. And if not, hopefully the word of God shows you that we are today. So let's be nourished by the Holy Spirit in his word this morning, starting in verse 27, Philippians chapter 1. The apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Only, only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I might hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Oh God, we need you this morning. We ask that you would nourish us with your strength today. Through the truth of your word we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies, uh, definitely my favorite war movie, is Saving Private Ryan, which you'll see the famous closing scene behind me here. As Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, leans into Matt Damon, Private Ryan, who at the end of this is just about ready to give his life for the sake of Private Ryan and everyone else that came to save him as the lone survivor left of his family. Their mission was to bring him home to his mom and to his family. Just accomplishing that mission, here on the verge of death, he's pulled in by Captain Miller and he says these words, earn this, James Earn this. What does he mean? Everything has already been earned for him. Men gave their lives. The price had already been paid. But what he is saying is this. Live in such a way that is worthy of the price that's been paid for you. Live worthy of the price that has been paid for you. Paul uses a verse that I have pondered over my life for many years. He says, no matter what happens, whether I come to you or whether I stay here in prison, only live your lives worthy of the gospel. Focus in on this and only this, that your life is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that there is a way that we as Christians can conduct ourselves, living in the world, relating to one another that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul, in essence, is saying, live worthy of the price that has been paid for you. In the gospel, 
But I don't want to assume that all of us understand that word gospel. Where we live, we hear that term thrown around quite a bit with gospel music. We hear it spoken of. We were in a family's home, that is we as in uh, Pastor Chuck and I, and we were sitting at their kitchen table, and we opened the word of God with them, and we began to show them what salvation is from the word of God, what the gospel is all about from the Bible. And we asked this couple who had been around Christianity, that had been to church before, have you ever heard it explained like this? And they looked and said, no, I've never heard the gospel explained like this in my life. And so we don't want to assume that everyone, even if you've been around church, knows exactly what the gospel is. Now, if you notice here in this passage, Paul doesn't actually define the gospel because the people in Philippi were very familiar with what the gospel was all about. They heard and they knew in their church right there that Lydia's heart was open to receive the gospel as it was spoken to her. The Philippian jailer believed and received the gospel. So Paul is saying, you know what it's all about. Live worthy of it. But he does take time in other places, particularly in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, to unpack what is the gospel clearly. Well, the gospel is good news. It's a message. It's an announcement. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance. This is the ultimate importance. Do not miss this, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So the word gospel means good news. It's a message. It's an announcement. And it's the best message that we could ever hear. And here's how it's summed up from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died. It's an event that took place in history. God himself laid down his life. Christ died for our sins. Now that word for means in the place of or on behalf of. So Christ died on the behalf of sinners. You and I, every single person who's ever lived cannot stand before a holy God. Our sin keeps us from him and a holy substitute, a perfect substitute. Jesus Christ had to die on our behalf. And then he rose again. That is that the resurrection of Christ is the receipt that everything had been paid for. Salvation had been fully accomplished. He was vindicated by God the Father saying, I accept your payment on behalf of people for the sins of humanity. And that is to be received through faith. That is to believe with everything that you have, trusting only in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ and nothing else, and the result is salvation. Let me summarize that one more time. Christ died for sins. Christ rose again. We receive the message of the gospel through faith alone, resulting in salvation. 
That is for you if you trust that full acceptance before the Father. The goodness of Christ given to you so that you can stand before a holy God, not fearing anything. The result is abundant life, meaning in this life. What everyone is looking for and possessing right now, eternal life that will one day be realized when you are with Christ. All of this comes through Jesus and it comes through faith. Have you heard it explained that way before? Have you responded to it if you have? Won't you respond in belief, turn from your sin and turn to Christ? Have you responded? Have you believed in Christ's work alone? Do you thank God for that often? I mean, do you think about what a privilege that is that there are people across the globe who have never heard the gospel? There are unreached people groups that not only haven't heard the gospel, have never heard the name of Jesus before. And there are people that are living in and among us right now that have never heard the gospel fully explained. Oh, thank God that he's revealed himself to you. And if you've received that, he's awakened your heart to understand it and to see your need through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to recite that over and over to yourself every day that I am a sinner and Christ saved me. It will keep you humble It will keep you from defaulting to works, thinking that's what keeps you saved by God. It will motivate you to do good works because you have acceptance from God, and it'll make you a grateful person. The more saturated, the more you think about the gospel and what God has accomplished in your life. God found us in the gospel. The price has been fully paid for us. It isn't something we could ever earn or buy. So Paul says, no matter what happens, in every situation, good, bad, or ugly, live a life worthy of the price that's been paid for you so that you have freedom because of the gospel. And then he begins to unpack this section here. He transitions to a part of unity. You see this all throughout the second chapter. Unity that comes because of the gospel. So you look at this, that the gospel is an individual decision that everyone must make. Nobody is born a Christian. Nobody's brought in because of the family. Everyone must make an individual decision for themselves and an individual person that is Jesus Christ who is the only individual who can bring you to God. And once you've made that individual decision on your own, you are brought into a people who have made that decision themselves, the family of God. So you go from singularity to plurality, living now in God's family. Now, is living in family always easy? No, right? It's not always easy. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to be a family, if you're going to be the church at Philippi that is motivated, centered around the gospel, this is what it's going to look like for you to pursue a mission together. And this is what it's going to look like for us coming together as the family of God, pursuing Christ together in a gospel-centered way. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come see you or I am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith 
of the gospel. He says, standing firm in one spirit, in one mind. Let me lay out for you just four ways of living worthy of the gospel together. And the first way that we live worthy of the gospel together is being united in purpose. United in purpose. All these traits of living out the gospel are given to us in team battle metaphors. The first one is that of a team has a great defense He says, stand firm. It means to hold one's ground in battle. He says, we're linking arms together. We're doing this, holding each other up, not letting anyone through the wall or any teaching that doesn't belong in here. We together are coming together, unified in mind and in spirit as a church around the gospel and the things that are true of Christ in the scripture. Now, spirit here, it could mean Holy Spirit. It could be the spirit, uh, our souls that are within us, unified together. And Bible teachers have been asking, well, which one is it, the Holy Spirit, or is it the spirit, our souls? I like the way that Piper defines it. The answer is, yes, it's both. As he says, we're unified in the one Holy Spirit, indwelling us, being in one spirit, holding fast to what makes us what we are in Christ. And so a church that is centered around the gospel, that lives worthy of the gospel, stands firm on the essentials of the faith. We are grounded in the core doctrines of the Bible. We don't get to decide, no matter what our experiences are, we don't get to decide what God's word says or what we're going to believe. God has revealed himself to us in his word, and we proclaim exactly how he has revealed himself. We are unmoved, and we're digging in in with our cleats into the ground and standing firm on these essentials. But we're also loosening up a little bit on the non-essentials, right? Things that in our lives we think of our own personal convictions become essentials of the faith. Things such as style of music, dress, whether you send your kids trick-or-treating or not, politics, These things that can distract us from being grounded in what's important. Part of being unified in the gospel is that there's diversity that comes with that, and that's what makes the community of Christ so beautiful. We're grounded in the main things and freedom in the others, but not being distracted by those freedoms or to not do things. So when I was the youth pastor here at Sailorville, very early on, when I was very young, I decided to do a magic trick on a gospel night that I thought would save all the kids that were in the presence of it. Uh, This magic trick was going to be so good that I would say, trust Jesus, and they're like, yes, sign me up right now, right? And so I worked really hard on this magic trick. And it was a long time ago. Greg Pollock hadn't planted in Altoona yet, and we were scouring YouTube for the greatest and easiest magic trick out there. We finally found it. And we practiced it all day long. And it was a card trick, and what we were going to do was bring a kid up, they were going to do the card trick, and then on the screen behind them, with fire and flames, it was going to show their card on the screen. I had worked so hard, and I had made it successful every time I attempted it, so I was very confident going into it. And it came time for it. Here's the presentation. Brought a kid up, and about halfway through, you know, if you've ever done a magic trick before, you're like, I didn't do it right right? And you're thinking that in your mind and thinking, oh God, would you just somehow make this work out for the sake of the gospel, right? (laughs) And it didn't happen. 
And on the screen behind me, I said, I know it's not the right card. It's going to show up on a screen. And I was like, let's just uh, skip this. Let's go to the next thing. Like, no, no, we're going to see the, if it works. And then the flames, like 10 seconds of flames on the screen. And the wrong card pops up. They're like, oh, that's not his card. I was like, I know. Thank you. And nobody got saved that night. You know why? Well, God saw fit not to, but I had worked so hard on the non-essentials for that night. I had worked so hard on that trick and not equally hard on what was most important, the presentation of the gospel to my shame. And yet so many of us, we could get so distracted by things that are so unessential. And we start to separate from other churches that don't agree fully with us, even though doctrinally we might be exactly the same, but oh, we don't do that kind of music, so we can't do anything with them. We don't do this or that, we can't do anything together. We don't agree on education. Are you guilty of this? When you think about what's most important to you, what do you hold to? Is it the things that are truly lined up in scripture, or is it things that aren't necessarily commanded by God that you've made that in your life. Paul says we stand together firm on the essentials and we loosen up on the things that aren't essential. We're firm on the gospel of Christ. So why do we separate? There is a time to separate. We separate from people who mess with the gospel, who try to add to it or take away from it. That's the person that we say, no, we don't want anything to do with that if you name the name of Christ but we stand firm on the gospel and what it is. Verse 27, look at the second half of it. He says, that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. First, we stand firm together on defense. This striving now speaks moving forward together on offense. Secondly, if we're going to live as a church worthy of the gospel together, we need to be united in labor. That is, working hard together, pancaking the other team on their backs, storming the castle, pushing others forward so that the gospel is advanced. Do you believe the gospel? You believe it? You say, yeah, I know it with all my heart, and a life that backs it up is a life that demonstrates the way that you live that you receive the gospel. A life-changing encounter with Christ and sharing that with other people. And that's just not something that's done by a few key people at the church. It's not just something that's done by a few staff members or a couple of really gifted people. If that's the case, it won't happen. It'll just be a gathering on Sundays, but it is a people using all their gifts, all their abilities, coming together as one body, united in labor, working hard and striving forward in every area, even when it's inconvenient in our schedules, even when we're busy, we're striving together for what is most important, the faith of the gospel. 
That's why we're striving. We want to see more people be more like Jesus, and we want to push each other forward to that end, motivated by the gospel that comes from Christ, and so we need seasoned, older Christians to be investing in the younger generation, taking them with you, showing them what ministry is all about, and modeling it to learn from you. How are you doing a striving forward? Are you doing a good job of being planted? You got good doctrine. I'm here, I'm on defense. But are you striving forward, growing in your faith, helping others do the same, sharing the good news, the gospel with others so that they join the line, that they join the ranks, instead of just being stagnant and holding out and saying, everybody, come to me. Paul says, we strive together forward. And then verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. For it has been granted to you, we'll just do verse 28, that is given to you by God. So thirdly, we want to be united in courage. United in courage. What do you need courage for in your life right now? Is there financial stress in your life when you're having a hard time trusting God? You're looking at that bank account and you're like, oh God, I don't know how we're gonna do this. What do you need courage in your life right now? There's this friend that I'm really scared to talk about Jesus with because it's gonna make our relationship really strange and awkward and I don't know how they're gonna react. I need courage because friends at school are making fun of me right now about my faith and I'm trying to live it out. I need courage because I have a huge decision in front of me I need courage. I don't know if I should be adopting. I'm scared of what, that, what comes about with that. I'm, I'm nervous about uh, God might call me into missions. My parenting right now, I need courage in it. I'm struggling. It's difficult. And Paul says, not frightened by anything. You know what this literally means? It means don't freak out. Don't let things bother you or paralyze you with fear. He's referring to a horse who is frightened and causes a stampede. Everyone goes crazy. I was riding a horse this summer, and uh, let me tell you how I got up on that horse, right? So I was uh, speaking at a camp, and they said, we have horses, would you like to ride one? I said, absolutely. Been about 15 years since I got on a horse, I forgot how tall they were, and just how frightening that can be. And we were riding through the woods on a trail, and all of a sudden some wind blew. And one of the leaves next to my horse just started fluttering like this. And my horse sees that. And if you know a horse, like they have like this, everything's cool, I'm hanging out. And then a leaf, oh my goodness, like total fear. There's no in between, right? My horse takes off, we're galloping, I'm holding on, right? And I'm like yelling to the horse, it's a leaf, it's a leaf, it's a leaf! That's what Paul's saying. Horses, it can be the stupidest thing, and they're fearful of it, and then they get everyone else in a frenzy, and all the other horses start riding with them and, and running away. Oh, something must be going on, but some of us, Paul is saying, this is your life. The littlest thing, and you freak out. Oh, I can't handle this. I'll, I'll never do it. This is my life at times. The smallest thing. Proclaim the truth of God on Monday morning, go, oh, I don't know. I don't think I'm gonna be able to get everything done this week, Right? And what do we do? We get everyone else into a frenzy instead of trusting God. 
Instead, we say, I'm not going to panic and make myself ineffective. You realize that's what fear does. It's the work of the enemy that makes you ineffective. It makes you unusable for God. That's why the the most used commandment in all of scripture is don't be afraid. Because as humans in our sinful state, that's so easy for us to do. So what's the cure for fear? Let me submit to you this morning that the cure for fear is more fear. The cure for fear is more fear. You see, you've got your fear in the wrong place. You've got your fear in what man can do. The fear of your circumstances where really you need to increase your fear of God. And what I mean by that is a proper awe of him, a proper putting of who he is in his place, that he is seated on the throne no matter what the events of your life are. And you need to have a proper awe and fear of God that that doesn't mean the other fear goes away. It's eclipsed by a greater fear for God and his plan for your life and trusting his sovereignty. Because he is sovereign, he's in total control. That's why Paul says, listen, your opponents are headed towards destruction, but to you, you're headed towards salvation. That causes you to not fear. You think about those that were opposing him, those from the Roman Empire, right? Ortland points this out. He says, how's the Roman Empire doing now? They on top of the world, Rome? No. He says, anyone that's opposing you is headed to destruction, but not you. You're headed to hope if you're in Christ. You're headed to the fullness of your salvation and God's Truth, God's movement keeps progressing after you go. So do you have misplaced fear this morning? You need to change the object of your courage to Jesus, the object of your fear, and let his gospel that says you don't deserve anything but I freely give you everything in Christ let that wipe away your fears and as John says, put that perfect love Cast out all fear. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Fourth and last, we need to be united in heartache united in heartache when one person in the family of God who has received the gospel in the community hurts, we all hurt. We hurt along with the one in our cell group that's struggling. When they share, we hurt, we ache for them. And we're reminded of this great promise that that suffering, the trial, has actually been granted by God to them, to you. That's what the word granted here means in this text. It means grace. Being gifted something that you do not deserve. So what are we told we have in this text? We have been granted faith in Christ, salvation. That's the one where it's like, yes, that's the gift on Christmas morning that I've been waiting for, and I'm open, and I'm jumping up and down to receive it. And then Paul says, but it's also been gifted to you to suffer. That's the one where you open it up and it's like, oh man, I really hope there's a gift receipt attached to this thing because I want to take this back for something else. But yet, suffering is the gift that we don't want. 
but it's the gift that God gives to us for our good. And how is that? It doesn't feel like that at times. Let me just give you three ways briefly. Suffering is a gift to you because it brings you closer to Christ if you allow it. Paul says later on in Philippians that I might know him in his suffering. Suffering trial will allow you to know the Savior more. Now we all want our best life now, right? We all want to be happy and live prosperity, but this is what a guy named Tim Chaddock says. It says, we all long for prosperity, but we grow the most through adversity. We all long to prosperity and we grow the most through adversity. Haven't you seen that to be true in your life if you allow it to be? So God gives us trial and suffering so it'll push us toward him to see how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of heartache. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy where you say, oh yeah, suffering's great. No, but as you say in the midst of it, my savior's great and he's given this to me as a gift. Secondly, it causes you to trust Christ's power. Paul, who had a thorn in his flesh, this minister from Satan that has tormented him, he asked to take it away, and Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, therefore, I'll rejoice all the more in my weakness. Why? So the power of Christ may rest on me. So I can see God working in mighty ways through my weaknesses, through my trial that I wish could go away. I get to see God's power on display. And thirdly, for others to see. Do you know that suffering and trial isn't just for you? It's for also the benefit of others. When they look in on your life and they see you battling infertility, They see you with the loss of a loved one, a sickness. They see the struggle of a wayward child. They see you not getting into the college that you wanted to get into. They see you struggling through a broken relationship. And that's not just for you. That is so others look in on it and say, wow, what endurance that Christian has. Oh, I so want to go through trials like they do. That's why it's so important that we can't keep our trials in isolation. We must share. We must open up and say, this is what I'm going through so that we can receive prayer, we can receive comfort, and others can be encouraged as they watch and look on at you at how you respond and wonder in a world that doesn't know Christ, that looks in on a community that doesn't have it all together, that is going through heartache, but yet there's so much joy That is so very appealing. More than music, more than a great message, it's you with your life on display showing others how to suffer well. And so often we can say, where is God in my suffering? I feel so far from him, but he's so very close. Listen to this, this is what Kent Hughes says. Suffering that comes to a believer is not a sign of neglect. Did you catch that? Suffering that comes to a believer is not a sign of neglect, but proof that God's grace is at work in your life. Suffering doesn't mean that God's rejected you. He's proving to you that you belong to him through the painfulness of suffering and trial. And we think about the gospel in the midst of it. I could never earn this. 
I can't purchase it. It's been purchased for me. And I want to live worthy of the price that's been paid for me. Sailorville, we want to be a church that lives worthy of the price that has been paid for us because the God of the Bible is not like other belief systems. All other belief systems say, you want to be saved? You climb the mountain to God. Obey the tenets, do good works, and eventually you can make your way up to God where Christianity says, God descends the mountain and comes down to us. And then we rejected that God and took him back up that mountain and drove nails into his hands and feet and crucified him. So we don't want this God. But that was the plan of God all along in his sovereignty because the sacrifice for sins is exactly what needed to be happened. And all who believe in faith, even the ones that crucified him, all of us, that is, with our sins that were laid upon Jesus, if we believe in faith, we receive salvation. And that motivates us to live out all these things that Paul lays out, even suffering. Have you ever heard this before? Have you ever heard the gospel explained? That couple that said, no, we haven't before. Just last week, both of them professed faith in Jesus Christ. They trusted this message with all they had, putting away works and living a good life and believed that only Jesus Christ could save them. Would you do that today if you don't know him? God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation We thank you for the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the body of Christ. We're saved individually and brought into a family. And so God, I pray that Sailorville Church stands firm on the essentials of the gospel. I pray that we would strive forward together, not in being stagnant, or lukewarm, but striving forward, advancing the gospel, growing in faith, encouraging one another to keep going, that we would suffer well. We would suffer together. We would allow our lives to be open so other people would watch and say, wow, that's the kind of person I want to be, just like the apostle Paul. And it's almost like Paul is saying to us, he's pulling us in. He's saying, you, not just Philippi, you are engaged in the same struggle that I am in, Sailorville. He's pulling us in and saying that. He says, earn this. No, and you never could. Live up to the worthiness of the gospel. Give your lives to it. This is the most important thing. Won't you grasp that he's saying to you in your ear right now through the Holy Spirit and his word. He's saying, live worthy of the price that's been paid for you. God, we make that our prayer. Would you make it true in our lives? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.